York City is bursting with history. You can still see some of it with your very own eyes. For instance, you can pay a visit to what's billed as Manhattan's oldest house, the Morris Jumel Mansion. But some of the Big Apple's history is no longer visible, like the prison where the crooked politician William Boss Tweed died in 1878. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Greg Young and Tom Myers are good friends who dive deep into the history of New York City in their hit podcast, The Bowery Boys. Since they started in 2007, they've produced more than 200 episodes and are now making the rounds promoting their first book, Adventures in Old New York. Greg and Tom recently dropped by our studios to talk about their ongoing exploration into the city's rich past. With me now on Cityscape are Greg Young and Tom Myers. They are the Bowery Boys. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi. So how did this all get started? Well, Greg? (laughs) (laughs) So it started in the summer of 2007. Uh, So Tom and I have known each other for quite a long time um, through his sister. and We should explain that. Greg and my sister were roommates at the University of Missouri. Ah, okay. So very, 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 yeah, very old friends. So uh, just flash forward to 2007, and Tom is living um, on Essex Street, and I'm living three blocks away. And the Lower East Side. And so, you know, I frequently go over there for dinner and whatnot. Stop at the Pickle Guys, maybe? Stop at the Pickle Guys, maybe get some Bialis, actually. Economy candy. (laughs) Essex Street Market, still open while they're constructing the new one across the street, yeah. by the way. <laughs> so um, one day I went over there um, with my brand new laptop and said, hey, look, they have GarageBand, and there's this thing called podcasts that people do, Tom. Let's put on a show. Right, and, and we had been talking about maybe doing a radio show of some sort or uh-huh. an internet radio. That was kind of a key you know, buzzword that people were throwing around. Um, but podcasts were totally new you know Mm -hmm. i I don't even know that i understood what a podcast was when you suggested this to me i don't even remember if i was even listening to it i mean i might have been listening to one or two at that time right but uh so then however we we managed to settle on the subject uh, for that first show it was i had i just read the book gotham the classic book about new york history before 1898 and uh just read about collect pond Mm -hmm. and how canal street which is the street that tom was the corner of um how it was formed and why it was called canal because it was draining collect pond so we decided to make that first show just sort of like riffing on that it's it doesn't it's not exactly the the deepest history we ever told but it it got us started pretty shallow yeah Yeah, but but we we pulled a um as luck would have it i had a karaoke microphone Uh in the closet we pulled it out plugged it into uh greg's new laptop and we just recorded something uh, didn't call it the Bowery Boys. No, the, the first time. one wasn't. We called it th- th- again. This was you know everybody was using the word cast. Yeah. So we were, we called it New York Cast. New York <laughs> cast. doesn't really roll off. <laughs> no. You know, so when did the Bowery Boys stick? That came the next. That came the next episode. Um, and we were trying to co- come up with a catchier title. And I mean, I don't know if you remember, but around 2007, you know, we were in. The big craze was Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. Mm-hmm. And if anyone was really talking and focusing on history, it was really like five points and mid-19th century gang activity. So um, that's where the name came from, because the Bowery Boys were a notorious gang of the mid-19th century. And that-, that Kind that's of not, in the neighborhood. Yeah, and that was know? a better name than, you know, the Roach Guards or the Dead Rabbits. So we decided the Bowery Boys, uh, we went with that, with the idea of, oh, 
well, perhaps naively thinking, well, we're just sort of creating our own gang of history geeks. And I think when we looked them up too, we were sort of taken, you know, by the fact that they were sort of dandy characters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we we weren't so uh, aware, perhaps, of their anti-immigrant slant um, no. <laughs> or, you know, anything deeper than that. But we did like the fact that they had top hats and ran yeah. around. And so do so you wear walks. top hats when you record the podcast? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> we might we wear our top... secrets. Well, yeah, you're a top hat. I'm more of a fedora guy. But... <laughs> so what was then the next episode? If the first episode was about the Collect Pond, where did you go? Episode number two. So I can. So the, the early episodes went as follows. The second one was called What's in a Name? Mm -hmm. As like, what's how did, where did New York get all of its names from? Again, these were very short shows back then. This was, was probably like 12 minutes yeah, or something. Maybe right about 10 minutes. And, and now they run how long? 50. <laughs> 50. Sometimes an so. hour. Yeah, sometimes uh, shows can... I mean, Jane Jacobs' show was about an hour, but that's a... That should be an hour, you know. 200th episode. We typically record now for about an, an hour and a half and then cut it down to about 45 mm -hmm. to 52 minutes. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is unlike a lot of shows where you can just record it and maybe do a little sound cleanup, but it's ready to go because there's so many facts in this mm -hmm. show that we have to be like really careful that maybe we didn't say something wrong or like maybe mispronounced a name or something. We also don't script it. So right. that's another reason that we go over, you know. That's a lot of knowledge to have in your head for an unscripted <laughs> program. Right. Some's, on, some's in the head, some's on a piece of paper. You know, uh -huh. we have bullet points in front of us. But mm -hmm. we're not exactly sure how it's going to come out, how we're going to frame things. And we do our own research. So a, um, a show typically has four acts, you know, or five if you include the intro. Um, but then, you know, I take the first section, Greg takes the second, then we have a little break, and then, you know, I take the third, and he takes the fourth. And so we know the contours of the show, and we have an outline to work with at the beginning. But we don't really know the specific research that the other person's doing, because mm -hmm. we want to keep some of it as a surprise so we can have a genuine reaction. Mm -hmm. How do you go about your research Blindly, <laughs> <laughs> no. So once we have an once we have an outline, we kind of decide. Hey, Tom, you're really good with uh, early nineteenth century uh, immigrants moving to New York. So why don't you take that section, mm -hmm. and then I'll take this bio section. So we'll sort of split it up that way, um, and that affords us to go off on zany research adventures where I can find information that I, Tom may not know about. Like I might have found a kooky book from like 1850s or something. So um, between, so we put all that together and by the time we sort of sit down, it's a, it's a mix of like, I know what you're going to say, but I don't know how you're going to say it or what facts you're going to have you to don't support always that. know what i'm going to say no 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 and i don't <laughs> necessarily know what you're going to say either and i i love going like to the new york historical society or the archives of the new york public library the rare books um you know these mm -hmm. the librarians and historians and and archivists are amazing resources yeah. for us and sometimes you know they they have ideas that you can't um, find necessarily mm -hmm. on your own if you just, you know, start doing Google searches. And the, uh, there's, I really have to reinforce how blessed we are to live in an age with digital archives mm -hmm. where um, I can go back to old newspapers where it would take weeks to find certain things. And now it's a matter of minutes, right? So right. that's the really... The Times, too. I mean, the New right. York Times archive mm -hmm. is Yeah, you incredible. can go back pretty deep. Mm -hmm. right. Oh, yeah. All the way back to the 1840s? Yeah, as the, the right to the beginning. Yeah. 
Now, neither of you are native to New York, correct? That is true. I, we both moved in 1993. Right. It's for separate reasons. We, we knew each other by that, at that point. From where are you from? I'm from Missouri, um, from Springfield, Missouri. From and I'm, I'm, I'm from Ohio. Yes. Uh, northern Ohio, right on Lake Erie, a small town. And I came here right after college to get into magazine journalism, which was my original uh, f- focus in life. And Tom was in- I came for Columbia for, yeah. to attend Columbia. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, so I've lived, we've lived here for a really long time, but I mean, that is one element, uh, that's sort of interesting about our show that what we're bringing to New York city history is almost a wide eyed approach. I think that two people who did the same kind of show who were native New Yorkers, uh, might do it in a similar fashion, but might have a different perspective than the one that we do. Yeah. And New York is also a city of immigrants. You know, it's in, there are millions and millions of stories of people coming to the city, mm-hmm. some staying, some passing on. So know. when you started the podcast, did you have locals in mind or were you doing this for out-of-towners? I don't know even how much we <laughs> consider the audience or even considered that people would be listening to the show. You know, I think we thought, let's tell stories. We both like to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um and what should we focus on? We didn't even think at the very beginning that it would be so much about um, history with a capital H. It would be more like, hey, explaining why certain things are the way that they are in New York. I remember early on, you know, thinking that we could do a topic on the uh, the, the woman who tells you, um, welcome to New York City taxi and to please <laughs> buckle your seatbelt. Uh-huh. You know, this doesn't even this person, this tape doesn't even play anymore when yeah. you get into a taxi. But it did in 2007. And then they, you know, remember then they went into like stars. They, they used yeah, famous yeah, New yeah, Yorkers. Rivers, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But bef- yeah. right, exactly. Before that, there was this other woman. So I thought, well, that could be kind of a fun thing. You did an early episode on dogs oh, yeah, in New York. So. I mean, we, we were kind of, you know, playing <laughs> around. Experimenting with the form. But right. it took yeah. off, and it took off pretty yeah. quickly, though. Well, somebody liked us at iTunes and mm-hmm. put us on the front page, and we'd still like to thank that person. Take <laughs> them out for a pizza at some point. And to, to go back to one of your earlier question in that regard, again, we knew we had listeners, but we thought our listeners were just going to be New Yorkers, right? So what would we... That dis- is to say people living here. Living in mm-hmm. New York, right. So, But what we discovered, I mean, sort of a little bit right after the sort of iTunes thing happened, is we started getting letters and emails from people uh, all across the country and around the world, and soon realized that, in fact, perhaps even more than half of our listeners didn't even live in New York City. And what we were was kind of a a vessel for people to project uh, their own romantic thoughts of what New York is, I think. So how many people are downloading the podcast now? It's a little bit hard to quantify sometimes. I mean, we can tell you that certain episodes um, go over 100,000 downloads. Uh, other ones, you know, I'd, I'd say typical uh, show is about seventy-five to 85,000. Yeah. Like I mean, we're up to, oh, like overall, we're up to a, a quarter million downloads a month. That is remarkable. Is How does that make you feel <laughs> knowing so many people are listening to this podcast? 
it's a little easier if we don't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, it's, it's, what's extraordinary it's stage is, is because of the of the book, uh, we're actually going. We're actually doing something which we don't normally do, which is actually interact with people. Because usually a podcast <laughs> is done with the two of us in a room, and then we edit it, and then we interact with people via emails or on Facebook sure. or social media. But finally, we get to actually go out and see people face to face, and we have just been. I mean, overwhelmed. I mean, I'm. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm stunned. Really, I feel like I don't it's... quite have the words to just to how gracious people are it's so wonderful to, to what know. do they most want to know about the bowery boys when you meet them well so first of all if you have this you know, it, it's an intimate relationship that you develop with somebody and i'm sure that your listeners have this with mm-hmm. you where they're so used to your voice going into their ears you know they have this perception of who you are and then when they see you for the first time and they hear that voice coming out of a head you know, it's kind of it's a little bit surreal for them as well. You yeah, know? I tell people I'm much taller on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, you know, the uh, people are even like, oh, I saw your pictures, but I thought you were Tom. <laughs> right. Which is <laughs> or, funny for us because we've known each other for so yeah. long, for decades to think that my voice could be coming out of your head <laughs> is also very funny. So, um, no, it's it's been really overwhelmingly like amazing to meet people and uh, to to hear their suggestions as mm-hmm. well for, for shows, to hear what they like about the show. They tend not to tell us what they don't like about the show when they're meeting <laughs> us. Um. But we, we find out about it eventually. <laughs> um, what I really like is when people... Th- they, they because they are hearing us. It's almost like they're overhearing us, like at a bar. So, like what they, when they come up and approach us, there's something like, oh, like we already kind of know you, but we just don't know them. So, right. I, it's really but great. it's very helpful, you know, to meet people and to know that there are real people behind those download mm-hmm. statistics, mm-hmm. Um, because it's the two of us, you know, in a recording studio, either in his apartment or my house. We don't. We don't see the people, you know, and so there's something very abstract about making this that maybe isn't so abstract for radio hosts, you know, who are more accustomed to to interacting with their listeners. Well, this book is jam-packed with history. (laughs) It includes so much detail about New York City. You tell us what history is still visible. Mm -hmm. You also tell us about history that has vanished Mm -hmm. in New York City. So let's talk a little bit about some of the vanished in New York City. There was once a wind tunnel that is no longer. Are you referring to Beach's pneumatic tube? Yes, I am. <laughs> yes. Well, luckily, um, that was the subject of our last podcast. So uh, we, 207. We're, we're conveniently full of uh, annoying trivia about that. So it was, it's, it was New York's first subway. I believe it's also America's first subway, technically, yes. although it was only a block long. It was really a demonstration subway. Alfred Eli Beach, um, who was the publisher of Scientific American, saw pneumatic power, the, the power of like air pressure, as a way to solve New York's transportation crisis. You know, there, the city was really growing, but uh, people were still like contained down in lower Manhattan. And this is 1870. Mm-hmm. So really the lead up to 1870, late 60s, and the city's booming, right? And so there are all these different ideas floating around by different engineers and entrepreneurs about how to construct basically railroad transportation in the city. London had been grappling with it too, and they had introduced a subway system, but it was more of a sort of cut, open cut, you know, uh, and around the outskirts of the town. Mm -hmm. So Beach had this idea to use the same technology that was powering 
pneumatic mail tubes um, to move people around the city. And so he got a license or a charter to build a mail tube system in New York. And as Greg wrote in the book, um, he just didn't, you know, the city didn't realize that it would be big enough to move a mailman. <laughs> and it's a huge, huge packages in, in human form. So that uh, that tunnel lay underneath Broadway right across from City Hall for for a few decades. And Between Warren and Williams? Is that? What, no, no, no. Um, but Warren. It's a, yeah. Warren's one of the streets. Yeah. Uh, Murray. Murray, thank you. So the uh, but the tunnel was there for several decades and was torn out with the construction of the subway in 1912. So the subway station that's actually there today, like across the street, the NNR train, um, uh, sort of like consumed what that original tunnel used to be. But it, you know, for three years it was open. Um, as a demonstration, he was mm-hmm. able to keep it open, and people rode this thing one block, you know, and were sort of dazzled by this ability to move mm-hmm. underground by like vacuum suction, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just go back and forth, which is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, to it's a little ride, <laughs> right? But it, the idea was to to build that throughout the island of Manhattan yeah. would have been incredible and a disaster. Also vanished the world's worst post office. (laughs) Just uh, like like right next to where they would have gotten off of, or where they did get (laughs) off of beaches. What made Uh, it the world's worst post office? So that's the funny thing. When I look at pictures of this building, I think, wow, what a really handsome, certainly ostentatious mm-hmm. structure. Um, it's it's just covered in in, in ornamentation. Right. Um, the problem was it was built at a time when that was a really popular style. And then by the time it was completed, that style was done. <laughs> so it's like the fashion of the day had moved on. So um, people disliked it immensely. And uh, it was, and then especially once the Woolworth building and once the other kind of towers of lower Manhattan began. Right across being, the street. Yeah. Just, and so it, then it looked really garish, right? Because you had the stunning example of, of architecture literally next door to it, across the street from it in the Woolworth. So. And imagine like a wedding cake that is just shy of like tumbling in upon itself uh-huh. because it has too much frosting on it. That's true. That That's was it. And description. I should have put that in the book. But it was <laughs> the, the 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 post office was at the southern tip of City Hall Park and um, in sort of that wedge, so a kind of triangle shape, right? Um, it's amazing when you walk by it today to consider that this huge mm-hmm. central post office was was there. It basically looks like it's you know it's the equivalent of the Dowager Countess from Downton Abbey, <laughs> right? It's like fl- really big hat, old and flowery. Yeah, but you referenced the Woolworth Building. The Woolworth Building was once the tallest building. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot in the book about what was once the tallest building, yeah. and then that building got trumped, and so on and so on. The focus of that chapter, which which I, we wanted to convey, is that yeah, so. There, there was this huge race to always build the the tallest building in the world, and for many, many, many years, uh, New York had that distinction in various buildings. But the interesting thing is another building that was the tallest building in the world is still standing across the street from the Woolworth building called the Park Row building, but no one ever pays attention to the Park Row building. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's How long was it the tallest building? Uh, I believe it was only for a year or a couple years. I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, it's kind of a unique building. It has these two cupolas at the top that almost look like rabbit ears in a way but the building other than that is incredibly 
non-extraordinary in terms of its architectural worth. So, but it's just funny to think that, like, at one point that was the tallest building in the world, and mm-hmm. people basically walk by it. And I mean, it used to be the JNR Music World. And, and also, but, we, you know, you can't talk about the tallest building in New York or the world without talking about the zoning laws. Then that you know many of these structures necessitated. Um, and that was passed in 1916. So because of that 1916 law, and there, there are two big zoning laws, and we did a show about this maybe five or six years mm-hmm. ago, um, these two zoning laws, 1916 and then 61. Um, but the 1916 established the concept of the setback mm-hmm. laws. So there was a limit to how high they could go up at the sidewalk level. And then they had to set back and then they could go up higher. And once you got to 25 percent of the square footage, you could go as high as you wanted with a tower. Mm-hmm. So you see this, you know, once once you're cued in, clued in on this, you see it everywhere around town. You know, you see these structures that kind of shrivel back to a quarter of their footprint and then, you know, shoot up with a tower. By the way, the boys call him Tom Zoning Law Myers. I just can't <laughs> <get> every, <laughs> every, every moment, which is great. No, it's fantastic. Yeah, you, you we make start it... talking about ice cream and I'll turn it <laughs> into, into a zoning, zoning law conversation. You know the cone sort of like narrows as it gets wider. Well, that's similar to how architecture was. In the, yeah, it's true. <laughs> What's vanished in New York City that you wish were still around so you can go check it out for yourself? Mm. um, That's a good question because it's, I mean, we're so used to New York today, it's hard to reconfigure it. I would say Penn Station. I just came into Penn Station. Mm -hmm. The old Penn Station. Mm -hmm. Because the the Penn Station we have today is a non-building, you know, pretty much. It's, you know, several basement concourse levels under something else. And the more I take New Jersey Transit, the more familiar I become with the different levels. And you start to actually sort of take pride in understanding how to get around, how to shuffle yourself around. Mm -hmm. But if you're not used to it, it's like endlessly confusing. (laughs) Now, I mean, we love the New York Public Library and we certainly love the main branch building. But I wonder, I would have been kind of nice to have seen what the old Murray Hill Reservoir Mm. would have been. So that was the holding tank, essentially, for the drinking water of New York City. And it sat on the spot where the the New York Public Library main branch is Mm -hmm. today. And it looks, from from all of the images, it looks like this Egyptian architecture. It's very dominant, domineering. Yeah, but people actually walked along the top of it with strolling with their parasols and and their dogs. And that was part of the Croton Aqueduct Mm -hmm. system. And right behind that, on the site of Bryant Park today, uh, was a Crystal Palace exhibition in the 1850s. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was an incredible, like, World's Fair um, exhibit that went on for several years, and several very important things were introduced at that, including, like, uh, inventions like the elevator. Um, And it burned down spectacularly uh, one day and was never rebuilt, and um, later it was developed into um, Bryant Park. Yeah, I wonder. Would what, have been uh, cool to see that. Well, I wonder if, like, I mean, there's no way that building would have survived from the 1850s. It was all glass and in um, metalwork. But um, imagine if it was somehow around today. It'd probably be a concert venue, <laughs> probably right. Yeah. It probably would have expanded it and turned it into a big arena. Is there anything in the city that you are surprised actually has survived? This is perhaps a, a strange interpretation of that. Um, the Times Square of the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, people romanticize it in many ways, even though, you know, a lot of it was quite terrible also. When we moved here in the 1990s, Times Square was in that transition. In fact, my first job was in Times Square in the mid-1990s. So 
we uh, we used to go out and there were like oh, fun yeah. bars go and to places. The Howard Johnson. It certainly wasn't obviously anyone they were even close to what Times Square is today. But even today, it is sort of remarkable to find places like Jimmy's. Like there mm-hmm. are like it's so built up. It's mm-hmm. almost like it's you know Blade Runner. Tokyo city of the future right but then you'll always find around these little places and you're just like how is this how's Jimmy's corner there how are these little eateries that have been around there for decades like how did they manage to survive how do, how are they surviving and resisting the pull of just selling the building and getting out of there New York City today is a relatively safe place but it has seen some pretty rough and tumble times, mm-hmm. including in its early days. You referenced Five Points mm-hmm. and the gangs. There's a street known as the Bloody Angle. What's mm-hmm. the story there? Doyer Street. Doyer Street in I, Chinatown. I mean, definitely one of our favorite places, I would, I would say, because it just has... Well, first of all, it's just a weird street. I mean, it's, it's a, a street that has like... A, it has a, a couple, hook. It has a couple funny hooks in it, right? Yeah. But... For, you know, it was the kind of the heart or near the heart of the early Chinese community and who really got their their footing over on Mott Street. But Doyer Street has all these famous legends have have risen around there from gang activity uh, to like assassinations and shootouts and bodies buried underneath the streets and rumors of tunnels underneath. And um, it has a really today even a very romantic glow lost to it because quite frankly chain restaurants not going to open on doyer street right so it's a lot of there is a great dim sum place on doyer Mm -hmm. there's a lot yeah there's local businesses there still and it's still great food and they called it right the the bloody angle because of the the fact that the the rival groups could hide you know around the corners Mm -hmm. from each other and attack each other surprise each other um with an attack in the category of really, this thing actually existed in New York City. <laughs> a rooftop horse hospital? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, Very near Astor Place. Yeah, that is a great little discovery. That's that's something I uh, was doing some random research on for the blog on something else. And when you're looking through newspaper articles, then my eye caught something one day that was, there was a horse hospital. And what's really cool is that there actually were pictures, that there's still pictures of the doctors like treating animals there. And so, yeah, it was a proper... Animal Hospital, but I mean, they had like. Let's locate this. Where it's oh sorry, it's Lafayette maybe. It's on Lafayette, about two blocks up from House, and I can't remember the yeah, address Mercer. right now. But uh, Bleecker, rather, the building is still there. Um, and I mean, just hilarious because yeah, they would have they would take the horses to the rooftop. I mean, sometimes they fresh would air. for some fresh air, mm-hmm. and then I think it's the t- the the top two floors were for horses, but then some of the other floors were for other kinds of animals. And it was uh, and the doctor lived in the building too. Yeah, and it was uh, I mean, it was it was actually quite a revolutionary hospital for the day, and because of many of the things that happened there, uh, veterinarians, uh, a lot of. Things that happened in the veterinarian skills mm-hmm. um, were developed there. I think it's funny because you brought up you know these kind of amazing places that we can't believe are still here. Yeah, places that we can't believe existed in the first place, and then places we're really sorry um, were wiped away. Mm-hmm. And those were all things when we were putting together the book. We were like, okay, how do we make a history book slash travel guide? You mm-hmm. know, a historical travel guide to a city and a city that like we would have also loved to have known. Right. So it was important for us to come up with this new category of uh, of places to visit, um, points of interest in the book, 
places that don't exist anymore. Yeah, and one place that I actually want mm-hmm. to visit that you have in the book, I've never actually witnessed it myself or seen it, PS 110 Florence Nightingale School, the owls there. <laughs> oh. I haven't seen those owls. I want to see the okay, owls. Okay, so... owls in this book. So, so the funny thing, I mean, it's a school that's t- um, tucked right underneath the bridge. So unless you're a student or a teacher or you live around there in one of the apartment complexes, you've probably only seen this building if you've walked or ridden a bike on the Williamsburg Bridge, and you look over to, to you look south, and there's just this building with like a ton of owls, like way too many owls are on it, right? And um, I mean, what's extraordinary is like a lot of buildings have a bunch of like fancy ornamentation, but that is the actual Florence Nightingale School, and in Florence Nightingale loved her owls, and she actually kept a small owl in her pocket named Athena uh, for wisdom. So, I mean, it makes sense. All of these details, too (laughs) much to resist, you know, when putting together the book. Right. Well, I'm going to go check out those owls. Oh, you should. It's a a glorious school. It's also because that's that's an area that I find that's really interesting to walk around, that area of Laurier Side, those little streets. We all know New York City is great. It's so great that some people never want to leave. And you talk about some ghost stories in this book. (laughs) So our ghost stories um, are always a really popular annual tradition on the Bowery Boys. So we've we done... tell them maybe four or five or six mm-hmm. every year for the Halloween show, and, um, and people respond to them because it's it's history with just a little bit of like uh, spooky glamour to it. Well, the Bowery Boys, Greg Young, Tom Myers, thank you so much for coming. Thank in. you. Thanks for it's having been a us. pleasure. Greg Young and Tom Myers are the guys behind the hit podcast, The Bowery Boys. Their new book is called The Bowery Boys, Adventures in Old New York. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.